Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the ways you've been moving in our church since its inception and for the ways that you've made it very clear that this is about Jesus and people knowing him and being at rest with you because of him and having their lives be um, his and comfortably safe in his arms, yet lives lived radically to love others well. Uh, Father, we pray that uh, the remaining resources we need so that we can close on this chapel, which is really yours, and that you can continue to work from this place outwardly into our community and nation and the world, that you do so. And we thank you that you hear us, that you know what we need. You knew it before we ever asked. But we have, as your church, for the last three months, asked you to provide, and we continue to do so. And we will thank you for your kindnesses, and, um, and we are thankful for all that you've done, all the people who've given, all the people who've not only given financially, whether it be a sacrifice of a little or a sacrifice of a lot. Uh, we thank you for those who've given of their time and spent time praying and participating in the 24 hours of prayer. Father, we pray that um, not only would you have been pleased to work in our hearts doing the project that you said you set out to do, that you would finish the work you began in us, but that you would have worked in this church in such a way that we would have seen your glory more clearly. And again, that's why we come again today to your word. Our, our need, as we'll even see today, our need for joy is bound up in our ability to see you for who you really are, to see and know the incarnate Christ, and to be safe in your presence and let that produce joy in us that would lead to a life of service and worship and sacrifice and a life that really is lived in radical obedience to you only because we have seen you for who you really are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Red and green are the Christmas colors. And you'd think that they'd have covered this in seminary, but up until a week ago, if you had asked me why red and green, I wouldn't have had an answer for you. I just never <laughs> thought to, invi to investigate, and they certainly never uh, they certainly never studied it in systematic theology one, two, or three. A and yet, there's a considerable discussion that takes place. I guess that's the nature of the internet on the web between scholars, which we think, gosh, don't they have better things to do and bigger problems to solve? But there is a discussion, maybe even an argument, about what these colors are and what they represent and how they ever got started in the first place. It could be that red represents the apple of the Garden of Eden, or so say some. A, a, a picture of our lost paradise It is, for some, the blood of Jesus that pays the ransom for that rebellion. A Cambridge scholar contends that these color choices are really rooted in a history of boundary setting within the church and culture, which of course meant that he thought that certain segments of the church wore one color and other certain segments of the church wore another, like gang colors, but, you know, in the church context, like the Crips and the Greens, you know, that kind of thing, the Bloods, you know, and there's, it, there's like a little internal war going on, which I think is really weird. But whatever its origin, wearing red is a way for us to get in the spirit of Christmas and celebrate. I was at a Christmas party last night at the Crabs, 
everybody was wearing red. I see an extra abundance of red during this month, even on Sundays. I, for instance, this morning got up and wore a shirt that was the closest to red that I had. And there's something about that. It, it, there's a festivity associated with it. There's a joy. Last night I took a picture of my daughters and Brooke Crab all dressed in red. And so there's this thing we have where it's it's the holiday season. It's cold. It's you know it's 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 red. It's green. It's fun. And I would say, if it's nothing else, it's a source of joy for us. It's an indication that we like to celebrate. We like to party. We like to actually have times of gathering together and rejoicing. And it's no coincidence that today as we conclude a campaign that we talk about Advent joy. It's the joy of a celebration. It's the joy of getting together with others. It's the joy of inviting friends into your church community. It's in, it's a joy of watching our kids play on this, uh, this jungle gym of a blow-up game. It's the joy of watching an elderly man take a shot at it. And Steve, um, it's the joy of... It's a, it's a joy just to be together. That's what, that's what really is so wonderful about this season. Time that you intentionally set aside with family. And there are a number of places in Scripture where we are given clues to both the mysterious nature and the spiritual mean, uh, means of t- obtaining joy. You see, there's, a, there's an issue about joy. is It is differentiated both linguistically and scripturally from happiness see it is something far more profound in acts chapter 20 verse 35 we're given an insight that we all know during the christmas season quote remember the words of jesus himself it is more blessed to give than to receive and any of you who are parents know this that when your kids buy you gifts they're using your money So there's really little joy associated with receiving a gift from your child, except for the joy of their little faces. But when they open something that you give them, man, that's something else. Thank you. Their faces light up. They're so excited. They're so excited to get gifts. And you live through the joy that they are experiencing. There's a greater blessing in giving than receiving. We understand that. There's a joy. In John 15, 11, Jesus spoke to his disciples and made it clear that our joy was a top priority of his. He said, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. John Piper, great preacher, theologian that many of us enjoy, has this take on John 15, 11, quote, the reason this text is so important is that Jesus refers to his own joy as being in us not just giving us a joy, but his joy in whatever he is joyful in that is now in us. We are not just rejoicing over what we know about Jesus. We are rejoicing with the very joy of Jesus over what he knows about everything, especially what he knows about his father. So with all this joy surrounding Christmas, it begs the question, In our narrative today from Matthew chapter 2, why was King Herod and all of Israel with him really troubled by the arrival of this baby, of Jesus, the so-called King of the Jews? It says in Matthew 2, verses 3 and 4 from our text today, when Herod the king heard what the wise men had told him about the king who was born, it says he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. 
And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. See, it was not a small thing for him to gather up all of the chief priests and the scribes. That in and of itself is, is a big deal. They didn't all live in the same neighborhood. And there were many, many of them. And he was not a Jew. So for the president to say, we've got ourselves a little bit of a crisis, I'm going to gather up all of the religious leaders from around the country that would be indicative of somebody who really is thinking something dangerous is about to happen. Something is really concerning me in all this. Today, my aim is to clarify how we can experience the genuine joy spoken of in the scriptures and also to clarify why many of us may not know this joy regularly. By looking into today's Advent narrative, we see that the joy of the Lord comes from seeing Jesus for who he is, and then knowing you're safe and secure in his presence. In other words, you can't experience the joy of Jesus if you're threatened by Jesus the King. If Jesus' presence in your life is some type of threat to you, that is what is cutting you off from the Advent joy of which we speak. So I have just a couple thoughts for you here on Advent Joy Sunday, and that is the first being, you miss out on joy if you don't want Jesus to be your king. And again, I'll read from the text, Matthew 2, verses 7 through 9. Herod summoned the wise men secretly. So you, again, you see this Herod, you know, creating this secret little council. I need to see what's going on. And he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring word to me that I may come and worship him. We all know he wasn't going to go worship him, right? He was lying. He was trying to find a way to discover where this threat to him was so he could eliminate it. And for so many, their life quest is ironically to know happiness, but in their fears, they push away the source of all joy. As we saw last week, the birth of Christ was announced to Jewish shepherds by an angel. Today in our text, we see him coming to Gentile philosophers by a star. To both, God spoke in a way they were familiar, a language that they would have understood to call them to Jesus. Why was Herod worried? Why was all of Jerusalem troubled? Well, perhaps you didn't know. In 40 B.C., 40 years before Christ, Jewish rebels... And the Persians had joined forces to push the Romans and Herod out of Palestine. But in 37 BC, three years later, Herod came back with the Romans and again took control over Jerusalem. And from that point till the birth of Christ, the Jews had shown a continual desire to overthrow Herod. And so therefore, Herod was a bit on edge. He was disturbed at the news of a king being born, the king of the Jews, and he reacted with violence when these magi came from Persia. Of course, four decades earlier, this had been a, not in a great experience. It wasn't a terrific alliance when the Persians and the Jews got together. So he reacted strongly. Orthodox Christian scholar D.A. Carson says and sees something really unique here. He says, the contrast between these well-motivated foreigners, Gentiles, and the unscrupulous jealousy of Herod, the official king of the Jews, and all of Jerusalem with him, foreshadows the response which official Judaism would make to Jesus. 
and the future welcome of Gentile believers into the true people of God. See, he sees a picture, a foreshadowing of what's going to happen when Jesus grows into his ministry over the next three decades. He's saying that the, the official people are going to react hostily to Jesus, the people with open hearts, the people who are not immediately saying Jesus is a threat to something I have in my life, the poor in spirit are going to be blessed among all. It is speculated by some that Israel as a whole, as a nation, resisted the notion of this coming Messiah and King because they were comfortable in their enslavement to the depraved moral culture of the day. In other words, if you're a, a, a cultural religious person and there's no personal threat to how you live or how you interact with other people, how you love others, and then all of a sudden somebody else is going to come in and kind of redo things, it may cause you a certain amount of discomfort. And so that in and of itself is going to feel threatening. Theologian Matthew Henry says, quote, The slavery of sin is foolishly preferred by many to the glorious liberty of the children of God only because... They apprehend some present difficulties attending that necessary revolution of the government in the soul. In other words, if you let somebody like Jesus come into your life, he's going to start telling you how you have to live. And if you determine that you know it all and you got it figured out and you don't want anybody telling you anything, then you can pretty much do as Herod did, work most of your life to push him away. Whatever the reason, some of us resist Jesus' kingship. And it could be that we want to rule our own lives and naturally resist the idea of someone else being king. But there also could be, for a lot of us, where we acknowledge that Jesus is king, but there's something in us that still isn't letting him reign. So we subtly or overtly work to eliminate Jesus' sense of Jesus' presence from our lives because he threatens us could be too that there's a sense in which a person may want to get close to Jesus the king but they've been told that by doing so it threatens their whole worldview and there's some truth in that if he created us he gets to tell us how we run best he gets to tell us how his world runs best Jesus is Lord but some people are unnecessarily frightened that Jesus is judgmental and harsh and so they stay their distance because he is a threat in that way too you know every year you hear these news stories of people wanting to eliminate jesus from public christmas celebrations or get rid of the manger scenes in in public spaces and i'm not here today to comment on all that i just know that at heart what some of that is is it feels threatening to some it makes them feel uncomfortable but it begs the question, why doesn't Santa Claus elicit the same kind of threat? I mean, why would anyone conceive of such a person? Is this really a better alternative to Jesus, a judgmental, old, overweight, white guy from Arctic North Pole who makes a list of good and bad that determines what kind of presents you get? I think it's time to get rid of this guy from all of our cultural lexicons. I think he's the real threat. Because this is kind of sort of what you have. You, this is the perception that a lot of people have of God. He's this angry guy. He's white. Uh, and, and, then he's, and then he's got this right and wrong list. And you're either on it or you're not. And, and what he's trying to say to people is, 
I would like to have a relationship with you. I have made it possible to engage you at a certain level that we haven't been able to do so before. And you see in the pursuit of the baby Jesus, both a group of people who are open to what he wants to do and a group of people who very feel very threatened. And I will say to you today, you can't experience Christmas joy. You can't experience Advent joy if you'll avoid the King Jesus who wants to bring that joy. Second thought I have for you today is this. You discover joy when you really, when you genuinely encounter Christ the King. See, this has to be a real thing. This can't be theoretical. This can't be done from a distance. You can't do what Herod did and send emissaries to interact with this king. This has to be something you personally experience. This has to be something that you don't ask scholars, what of this Messiah coming like Herod did? You, you have to go to him. And this is what it says was the experience of the wise men. Verses 10 through 12 of Matthew 2. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That seems like a lot of joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. These wise men thought they were coming to pay homage or worship an earthly king, and instead they found themselves on their faces worshiping the incarnate God. See, Christmas is a celebration of God breaking into time. We believe that Jesus was both fully man but fully God, by nature conceived by the Holy Spirit and Mary, his mother, he is by very nature God from all eternity. He pre-existed before all things were created. The Gospel of John says, through him all things were made. Anything that has been made was made through Jesus. And now what we see in Jesus, in this experience that these wise men are having is they're coming to this Jesus and instead of feeling like they're paying homage to a king, they realize they're encountering Almighty God. They weren't frightened. They were able to exceedingly rejoice with great joy because they saw who Jesus really was. And their response to knowing in the presence of the incarnate God, Jesus, that they were safe and secure was to experience a joy. And a joy not because they were worthy, but because they were at peace in his presence. And this is what happens when you experience the graciousness of the king of kings. Once assured of his disposition towards you, you will now willingly offer gifts to him as did these kings. But if you don't know that you are safe in the presence of almighty God, if you are not sure that his disposition towards you is one of grace, that he opposes the proud, but he gives grace and more grace to the humble. If you're not certain of that, you won't, as a result, do what they did. Bring him your gifts and your worship. There's one other part of this text that is telling. 
And it is that when they departed King Jesus, they were rebelling against the command of King Herod. See, these wise men, once they experienced Jesus for real, were willing to listen to the voice and the dream that came to them that said, don't go back to Herod. See, all of a sudden now, their real experience in the presence of God through Jesus, all of a sudden now, they were willing to say, I'm going to do what is considered radical. I'm going to defy the king. I'm actually not going to do what he commissioned me to come here to do because now I've experienced Jesus and he's my king. He's the one calling the shots. Radical allegiance to Jesus will only happen if you experience the joy of knowing this king. Radical obedience, which you'll hear some Christians speak of being a necessity, which, of course, Scripture tells us to love God is to obey him. That that he loves obedience more than he loves sacrifice. But the key to a life of radical obedience is an encounter with a king who is more radically loving and gracious than you ever dreamed. Certain celebrations I've discovered cause us to adjust our attire. Uh, Weddings, we are on our A game at weddings, or at least we're supposed to be. Uh, Proms, almost the same. Um... And I can say from experience, most people get really, really well put together for a first date. And uh, I've had some first dates that didn't go so well over the years. And so through those experiences, have been able to share wisdom with young men. One such piece of wisdom is don't eat barbecue on a first date and never, ever wear a white shirt. I slop all over myself. I still do. I ruin shirts like nobody's business. Now I know why rednecks put the napkin in their neck and then it can, hey, bring me some food, you know, because they've learned. They have learned that, you know, guys like me just slop all over ourselves. However, there was a time, I got to tell you, when the preferred garment of a holiday, when the preferred dress code was to wear white. White, unstained garments were seen as both classy and religiously symbolic. It was symbolic of people unstained by sin. There are certain religions today where that is still the case. You'll see they wear garments that are pure, clean, no spots, no wrinkles. Charles Spurgeon says this of the Jewish practice. White robes were holiday dresses among the Jews. They who have not defiled their garments shall have their faces always bright. They shall understand what Solomon meant when he said, Go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, and drink thy wine with a merry heart. Let thy garments always be white, for God hath accepted thy works. And here's the key. He who is accepted of God shall wear white garments of joy and gladness while he walks in sweet communion with the Lord Jesus. In other words, you may be like me morally speaking, where you just kind of feel like you're a slob. You know, you've got all this these stain on you, and you feel like, okay, I, I'm, I've been invited into the presence of the king, but I, I don't seem to have the attire to make that work. And naturally speaking, we don't, but Scripture uses these metaphors of clean and dirty and spotty and 
and messy to help us see that Jesus is the one who cleanses us so that we are continuously in the presence of the king celebrating without fear of judgment, without fear of slopping on myself. In other words, there are times as a believer where I make gargantuan mistakes. I sin against God, and yet in God's sight, I am still white as snow. My garments are never stained, even by my own sin, because Jesus has died for my sins. Jesus has paid for my sins. Jesus, as we talked about in last week's message, his righteousness has been imputed to us as believers, as children of the living God. We are safe and secure in the presence of God because of what Jesus has done. You and I now stand with white robes, clean, no spots, no wrinkles, and they will never, ever be spotted or wrinkled, even as we screw up, even as we confess our sins to God on a daily basis. In his sight, we are now celebrating with great joy. And today, you can know the joy of the Lord if you're willing to cease with your efforts to try to keep his kingship at bay. And if, like the wise men in Matthew's gospel, the Spirit of God is guiding you to seek and to enter into the presence of Jesus, you can have an encounter with Christ the Lord, which will set you on the path of genuine joy. It's a joy that supersedes mere happiness and taps into the root desire of every soul to be restored to their maker. It's the natural response of an encounter with a king who's ready to cleanse you of all your sin, who's ready to forgive you of everything you've ever done and everything you ever will do. He's a king who is more gracious than you can even fathom and at the same time more holy than we can even picture. See, once you get into the presence of this Jesus, you too will find yourself falling down and worshiping him you too will open your treasures and offer your gifts, as did the wise men. So the key for us is to genuinely encounter King Jesus. So let's pray to that end, shall we? Father, I can't manufacture an encounter with you for friends. I can't explain, apart from your grace, how you opened my eyes so that I would see who you were and want to believe and follow. Jesus, I I can't, other than your grace, explain how I would have ever understood that you've died for my sins. And so today, as we wrap up our service, as we wrap up the celebration of calling out to you to meet our needs, as we wrap up an Advent reflection on what you've called us to in life and joy. We have to pray that your spirit would work in our midst, not just in our church, but in our community. So many desperately need to know that if, like these wise men, they come to you, Jesus, that you're not going to cast them out. That they can find safety and security, that when they see you for who you really are, Jesus, that You will forgive them of their sins and cleanse them of all unrighteousness and not just the stuff that they've already done, but stuff that might come in the future that they can be set in your sight as holy and without blemish today merely by the receipt of your grace. 
and we can't make that happen for them. Your spirit has to transform them and enable them to believe. Today, we're going to ask you to quietly reflect for the next 60 seconds. And during that time, friend, if you've never received Christ, this is your moment. This is your moment to say, you know, I believe. I've seen the signs. God has been leading me. The Holy Spirit, I believe. The Spirit of God has been drawing me. I, I understand the gospel. I want Jesus. And today's the day where you call out to him and you realize in his presence that you can know him and it will change your life. As you sit quietly, and then Pastor Brooks is going to guide you through an opportunity for you to respond in prayer and respond by coming forward to take communion, perhaps for the first time as a believer in your life. We pray that today would be the day that you'd know his joy.